0: When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Today's episode is also presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you wherever you are in the world via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in the class just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you have been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home with Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's POD, P-O-D, at sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected, for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. We're also brought to you by Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste. Just globally inspired, restaurant-quality, plant-based meals. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering the code PODGO30 at checkout today. That's PODGO30 and $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. And finally, I want to tell you about Yubico. Yubico sets new world standards for simple, secure login, preventing unauthorized access to computers, servers, and internet accounts. The YubiKey from Yubico is a physical security key using two-factor authentication to protect your accounts. As more of us continue to work from home, it is more important than ever to protect your secure information. So what can you do to protect your accounts? Yubico is offering our listeners $10 off your next purchase of $100 or more using the code pod at yubico.com. That's code pod at yubico.com. Say hello to YubiKey and goodbye to account takeovers.
1: Health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rotersheimer, your host. As we get to the end of this crazy year, something I encourage everybody to do is take a look at your finances. Are there things you need to tweak before the year ends? Did you reach the goals that you'd set out for yourself? Are there blind spots or challenges that you need to address? Go take a look at some of our early episodes around finances to see where you can strengthen your core knowledge. And today, we're going to have a refresher of some of those things. And also, do you need to consider having a financial advisor to help you create a plan? My guest is Dan Capril. He's the author of several books, most notably, Advisor Architect, Building the Practice You've Always Wanted, and Renegade Advisor, Surviving in the Age of Amazon, a Financial Advisor himself, Dan's fee-based firm, Money & Clarity, manages close to $200 million in assets for clients in 20 states. All the while, he resides some 300 miles away from his office. He is also the host of Profitable Advisor Podcast. Thanks, Dan, for joining me today. Do you want to go ahead and kick us off by giving folks your background in being a financial advisor and then as well as strategies for growing the business and the other ventures that you've been in, podcasting, being an author, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like we've got a lot to go through.
1: Like a lot of people, I didn't necessarily set out to do this when I was 20 or you know 22. I came out of college with a journalism degree, understanding the reality is that that's a tough way to make a living. And so I quickly pursued any business opportunity that would talk to me. Unfortunately, back then, if you didn't have a very specific major in business, it was difficult to to even get an interview because they were looking for people who had been through business school. Now, this would have been in the uh, mid-80s. Fortunately, I was able to get a job with an insurance company, which quite frankly was not the career path I wanted. My father had worked in insurance and had said nothing good about it during his, his whole career. But I figured it was an opportunity just, well, it was a job. And eventually, I started working more and more into the the life and um, security side of that uh, industry uh, within that company. And I did that for 10 years. And I started to recognize a lot of financial advisors who, at this point, were my customers. We were trying to get other financial advisors to sell our products. I, I saw opportunities. I saw financial advisors who were successful that, Quite frankly, I didn't think we're really running great businesses. And if if working in corporate America for 10 years did anything for me, it it showed me a lot of those principles that usually work well. So I started to think, well, if they're successful, I can imagine I could be successful too. I decided, all right, I'm in my early 30s. If I'm ever going to do this, now is the time. I knew I didn't really want to work for somebody my whole life. I hated meetings. I hated the slow pace. I really hated office politics. I wasn't very good at it. I was very much, uh, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And so I said, all right, let's do this. It was interesting because obviously I needed the buy-in of my wife. We had just had a baby. So the timing probably couldn't have been worse, but I figured if it didn't work out, I could just become, I could get a job. And so that's when I did it. I said, all right, I'm going to become, I'm going to do what I've been showing other people how to do. I'll become a financial advisor. And um, I will attempt to do it differently than the way a lot of other um, advisors have. And I think that attitude that I was going to do it differently was a reason for the success that I had
0: early on. Gosh, you hit a lot of items that sound very similar to my journey. I was a communications major. (laughs) So, uh, and and I joke and say, this podcast is about the first time I've used my undergraduate degree (laughs) for anything uh, related to business or otherwise. Similarly, I went and got my MBA. It was not long ago. Somebody had asked me why I did that. And I'm like, frankly, I knew I was going to still be in business and I needed to go get a business degree. There wasn't anything any more strategic than that.
1: No, I did the same thing. And in fact, it was when I finished my MBA that I, I felt, okay, now I'm ready to go. And uh, so yeah, 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 we do have a very similar path.
0: Talk a little bit about the frustration or what it is that you saw with the other people that were financial advisors that I'm imagining maybe they weren't as financially minded as they should have been. Was that one of the main things that was an issue?
1: I have said, well, if they're, if they're successful, I can be successful. But one of the things that I noticed was that so many financial advisors really didn't live the life that they were telling their clients to live. They were almost like dentists with bad teeth. They weren't running businesses that were focused on profit. They certainly weren't operating with um, good budget sense. And when it came to offering advice, I saw too many financial advisors basically being product salespeople and not real advisors. I I often compare it to physicians. I mean, imagine if you went to a doctor who viewed his day as how much Lipitor can I prescribe in a day? That's what I saw a lot of. I saw a lot of advisors pushing certain products without analyzing what the client truly needed. And there was a a lack of objectivity in my opinion about the advice that was being given. Again, to use a doctor metaphor, imagine if the doctor only got paid by prescribing a drug or a medical procedure, surgery or something. You probably wouldn't be all that comfortable going to see the doctor because you're, when you see a doctor, you're really hoping he's going to tell you you're fine, but he will still charge you. And so many financial advisors, what they have done, and it was more so then, but it's still pretty prevalent now, is they've kind of confused advice with product pushing. And so my approach was, we weren't going to do any of that. We were going to provide product, but only after we provided our clients with a very holistic checkup and show them the direction they were heading in all areas and then let them to decide at that point what role they wanted us to play in the implementation. So we're naturally going to charge them to do that analysis. But that will assure them, to the best we can, a level of objectivity. Because if they choose not to work with us long term, well, at least we've been compensated. And if they do want to work with us, then they're going to work with us holistically. So we have uh, you know, a philosophy that says we want to work with people who feel they can trust us and if if the person can't that's fine. it doesn't mean that we 've done anything wrong. It's just trust is like love it's there or it's not sometimes uh, It can be earned, but we're not going to force anything on anybody so that approach was quite unique twenty some odd years ago when i when I started the firm and continues to serve us quite well because our average client is much larger. Than most financial advisors. And it's not because we attract super wealthy people, not at all. It's because when we work with somebody, we work with them fully. So they, you know, we don't just place trades or we don't just accept, oh, here's 50 grand. Let's see how you do. That's not a game that we play. We view ourselves like like a doctor. would. We're healers. We're healers in the financial sense. And there's a right way to do it. And if somebody wants to do it in a way that we don't feel is the right way, we're not going to be
0: working with that client. Maybe it's not worth theorizing, but I'm curious. As you mentioned, people basically being like sales people, and I, I say all the time, I am not sales and marketing driven at all. At best, I have conversations and tell people the things that I'm working in, but never sort of go for for the big sell. So it's it's hard for me to think of a person that would gravitate towards that part of the business as opposed to the actual advising? Is it just because of the reward of selling or do you think they're really not interested in the advising part?
1: Well, it's interesting. Let's go back to our undergraduate experiences of you and I. So many financial advisors that I've met went to college with the idea they were going to study business. And especially back in the 80s, your typical university that has an undergraduate business school, the way it would work is you would take prerequisite courses for two years and then you would apply to the business school within the university. So you were not guaranteed admission. More schools now will take a better student and give them automatic admission. But in most schools, you have to take those prerequisites. And I maintain that a lot of financial advisors were the guy who couldn't get into the business school. And they switched their major to. Journalism or communications. Why? Because they recognized they were going to go into sales. And one of the one of the things that's not all well known is that the profit margins in financial advisor, in the financial advisory business can be quite large. Doesn't mean they're ripping their clients off. It just means that the products are priced as such where there can be high compensation, especially if you're commission driven. Now, my firm is fee. We operate pretty much on a fee only basis. But there are advisors who operate only on a a commission basis. And some of these products will pay a significant percentage of the investment as a commission. So the desire to sell was met with, well, what do I sell? Well, if you can sell a product with a high profit margin, do it. But unfortunately, what got lost in there was, is this really the appropriate product for this client? And so what happens is you, you basically have two camps. Now, you know, me just basically saying this will, will create a great deal of, um, oh, angst, if you will, within the, the financial advisor community. But it's absolutely true. There are financial advisors who, I use that term very loosely, they, they're not advisors. They, they sell product and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And then there are two advisors who, trust me, they, they want to do well and they want a lot of clients. But they subscribe to a very certain way of doing it. And in fact, they may ultimately be more expensive, but they're doing it a a way that I think is the right way. So I think that's how it happens. I think that a lot of people, I don't think too many people go to college with the idea they're going to be financial advisors. Even if they study finance, they're thinking corporate finance. And it's through whatever set of circumstances, like mine, that led them in this direction. And then the question they have to ask themselves is, well, how do I want to do it? If they ultimately hook in with a large firm, they're going to be pressured to push products. And a lot of your better financial advisors today started with larger firms and then got sick of that pressure and decided, no, I'm going to uh, go in a different direction. I'm going to have my own firm. That's where it comes from. And I'm not necessarily implying one's good or bad, although maybe I am. I just want the consumer to understand it. I want you to understand that to call yourself an advisor does not require much. Now, there's various levels of certification and whatnot that separate us. Anybody can call themselves an advisor if, if they want to. And w- the level of service they can provide may, may be restricted by what certifications and licensing they have, but they can still use that name. And at the end of the day, they may just have nothing more than an insurance license that allows them to sell annuities.
0: Let's jump Right off of some of those points of the licensures, accreditations that are required to use that term advisor, what are those? And then also, what should a consumer be looking for as at least the lowest level? Assuming the advisor
1: wishes to get compensated in some way for for implementing plans. He's going to, he or she is probably first going to have a life insurance license. And a life insurance license will allow them to obviously sell life insurance. It'll also allow them to sell annuity products. And real just quick, an annuity product is one where you, you invest your money, it grows tax deferred, and you don't get taxed on it until you pull the money out. Now, there's many ways you can pull the money out, but it's a form of insurance. Then when it comes to true investments, non-guaranteed type products, The advisor can go a number of directions. Uh, Traditionally, they they would get a designation or a license called a Series 7, and that would allow them to sell pretty much anything for a commission. So it'd be a stock, a mutual fund, it really didn't matter, partnership. The industry has evolved away from a lot of that to where advisors are largely no longer doing things on a commission basis when it comes to investment products. And I applaud that. I think that's a good move. Um, the licensing that's required to do that is called a Series 65. And again, this is just a, a, a exam that the advisor takes with the state, and the consumer can look up that advisor. And I'll get to what they should look for here in a second. Now, in terms of broad-based education, there really is none. Those two licenses, the Series 65 and the life insurance, are the only things sanctioned by the state or the federal government As a way to call yourself an advisor. Now, there are organizations that are dedicated to financial advisor education. Now, I'm gonna be a little biased here, but in my opinion, the most comprehensive one, the best one, is the College of Financial Planners, which is part of the American College. And that's where the certified financial planner designation comes from. It's a difficult test, it has a passing rate of only 50% and it requires two years of experience. And typically the curriculum requires two years before you, you can take the test. And then there's a great deal of continuing education to call yourself a certified financial planner. Now, having said that, there are a lot of other designations that are out there that typically require much less study to get. And that's what happened is people were having difficulty getting uh, their their CFP. So other certification organizations popped up. Now, just because someone has a CFP doesn't make them a great financial advisor. Just like just because someone doesn't have one doesn't mean they're not. You know, it it's just one thing. Probably the best thing anyone should do is just go to Their state securities and exchange commission and look up that advisor's name and see if any complaints have ever been filed against them. That's useful. Now, having said that, I will tell you that successful advisors with large client bases are going to have an occasional complaint. It's not going to make them bad. Uh, We had a situation, it wasn't a complaint, but we had a situation once where we filed in a state and the state concluded we should have filed with them sooner. We had a couple of clients there. And they counted one of our clients twice. They felt that because the client had both an individual account and a business account, we should have filed sooner because we went over the minimum. Long story short, we ended up having to pay a significant fine to that state and we had to reveal it. So if someone takes the time, they'll say, oh, you got fined $40,000 by the state of Missouri. It was stupid in my opinion. But my point is, is that just because you see something doesn't necessarily mean that person's bad. It just means you want to maybe have that discussion. So if someone were to ask me, you know, why did you file? i say, well, because the accounting firm had both individuals and corporation account. We considered them to be one client and the state considered being two. That put us over five. Therefore, they felt we should have filed five years ago. And we filed when we did. So stuff like that will come up from time to time. Ultimately, though. What you want to do is have a clear understanding about what you want that advisor to do for you. And then you need to ask that advisor what they do and see where there's a match. In the end, it comes down to a little bit of a gut feel. Now, what you cannot do is you cannot ask that advisor for names of other clients. It's not legal for the, for the advisor to give any type of testimonials from his clients it's considered to be highly misleading. And it is, if you think about it, if you were to ask me to talk to some of my clients, am I going to give you the ones that I think might complain about me, or am I going to give you the ones that I know love me? Well, obviously I'm going to go with the latter and not the former. So, and you also have, you have a, privacy issues. So you know, you're not even allowed to acknowledge that someone's a client of yours. So you have these privacy issues that you have to deal with. So you take as much time as you feel is necessary. I think a great way to find an advisor is to attend a course that the advisor teaches. A lot of advisors teach courses on retirement planning. We do. That's how we ultimately get our clients. We usually teach them over two or three weeks. We charge for them. So it's not like we're trying, it's not a sales pitch. I would strongly recommend you not attend workshops where it's free and you get a steak dinner. Um, Those are dog and pony shows, generally product driven. But if If you have an opportunity, you see something in the mail, your local junior college offers you to come to a a workshop that's being taught, and maybe you have to pay $49 to come, highly recommend that. You're going to get a lot of good information. You'll get a feel for the competency level of that advisor, because I assure you, anyone who's teaching that course is a financial advisor, and they're hoping that you ultimately will want to schedule a consultation with them afterwards.
0: Let me go back to one other clarification Uh, where you mentioned the life insurance policies and the annuities and that being commission-based. So in my mind, I want to make sure I have it right. Yeah. When they sell that product, there is a commission on the sale of it, as opposed to, you mentioned that you are fee-based. The other way that compensation can work, as I understand it, is instead of being fee-based, the advisor basically has a fee that's based on the total portfolio. I'm thinking somewhere around like the 1%, but that's not considered commission-based.
1: It's not. So just to back up like you did, um, a life insurance policy, most of that first year premium, whatever it is, will be paid to the, the, the advisor who sells it. It doesn't matter what kind of product it is. At least half, in some cases, 90% of that first year premium will be paid. Now, some policies pay nothing beyond year year one, which means if you have an advisor who's constantly trying to switch you to different products, you want to be leery about that. He may have a financial incentive that won't work, will not work to your advantage. Annuity products typically will pay a one-time commission that could be as high as 7 8% of the amount that's being deposited. That's why these products have surrender charges. If you choose to cancel the policy after a year or two, you will pay basically that eight percent that the advisor got. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. When someone buys an annuity through my office, typically there's, there's no commission and there's no surrender charge. We will just typically bill them a small percentage. Uh, we charge usually a flat three quarters of 1%, but it can vary depending on the account size. And it's pay as you go. And that fee is usually broken up into monthly or quarterly installments. So the actual, you know, if you're only with an advisor for short term time, you're not even going to pay, you know, the 1% or three quarters of 1%, but you pay as you go. So if the advisor makes you more money, he or she will get compensated more because he's getting a percentage. If the value of your portfolio goes down, he or she will get paid less. So they tie their success to yours, which means if they ever recommend a change, chances are it won't increase their compensation. It will just increase in their mind, your chances for success. And that's why they're making it because you two are on the same side. Whereas if it's a commission-based product, with all due respect, they don't care how you do afterwards. They've already been paid.
0: And then related to that, I know we've mentioned on the show before, but confirming you should also be looking for somebody that is a fiduciary which is that same kind of relationship you're describing right
1: yeah in most cases today there is a fiduciary relationship which essentially means it's easier for you to sue them because they have to operate in your best interest ahead of their own now the opposite to that is is they're just making recommendations that are suitable the industry is definitely moving more and more towards that fiduciary standard, although I'm sure as of now, it's still less than half. So it, it really is put in place as a way to make it easier for somebody to to sue an advisor if they feel that they didn't act in their own best interest. Whereas if it's just a suitability standard, well, that makes it a lot harder for the consumer. Usually to meet that that fiduciary standard, they have to be registered as an investment advisor with their state, which means they took the Series 65 or they completed their certified financial planner those two things usually are are the the two things that you look for in order to determine if that fiduciary standard exists.
0: Now let's jump over a little bit to the other side of the equation as the advisor themselves. And and your podcast, I think, is dedicated to this world of people that are trying to build their business. What does the day-to-day operation look like? We've talked about the marketing selling aspect of it. Obviously, there's Got to be some amount of tracking markets and doing research and then the obvious actual advising. What does that look like?
1: So the podcast, the Profitable Advisor podcast, I started that largely because a lot of advisors sought out my advice on how to run their practice. I run a very systems-based practice that does not involve my presence a lot. Almost all of my personal time within the office is spent talking to clients. That's it. And potentially new clients, but a lot of the internal aspects of placing trades, of uh, um, meeting client requests for money, tra- changing the ownership of accounts. There's a lot of things that that happen on a day to day basis, as either a result of market movement or other things in the client's life, whether it be, you know, for example, that their accountant wants to make changes, or maybe their Your estate planning attorney wants to make changes. So there's a great deal of transactions, paperwork, those types of things that are heavily required. And too often what happens is advisors get caught up in that and they don't get caught up with counseling their clients, calming their clients. So much of what we do deals with emotions. You take like right now, as we record this, market's having a very bad week and we're just a a few days away from an election. So there's a a natural feeling people have that, oh no, something's gonna go wrong, what do I do? And our job is to invoke logic into that discussion because we are not naturally wired to to be logical when it comes to our own financial matters. Um, We think we are, but we're not, we're emotion-based beings. A good advisor is gonna spend a significant amount of his time counseling those existing clients. One of the biggest complaints people have of advisors is they don't feel as if they get enough attention from the advisor. And if you're an advisor who's not willing to, at the very least have an annual review, and then throughout the year communicate proactively to your clients, well, you're doing them a disservice. So you should, you don't necessarily have to have a ton of interaction with them, but the advisor should be there for you, should let you have availability to them all the time. And when there are issues that occur, The advisor should be proactive enough to communicate to you. And because I run my business very systems oriented, all my time is spent being proactive and available to clients and communicating to clients. And it's not always one-on-one. Very often it's, you know, workshops that I do, videos that I create, whatever the case might be. And I allow the day-to-day, you know, the processing and paperwork and all that other stuff to be done by my staff so that I can be available to coach them through difficult times, which every year has a difficult moment.
0: How about for somebody just starting out? Is it really they should be with some sort of group so that they can also benefit from having a staff doing some of the other work that has to be done? Or do they just have to basically work more hours to get the administrative pieces done as well as being there for their clients?
1: Well, you know, obviously when you're just getting started, you don't have a lot of administrative work because you don't have a lot of clients. So I, I don't think that, you know, necessary joining a group is essential. I didn't. The key thing comes down to is what is your knowledge base? So if you have worked for a company that's in that world, uh, a product provider, two financial advisors, you probably know more than any of the financial advisors that you're already with. Uh, if you don't, learn it. I mean, I got all of my professional designations while I was still working for a company. I didn't get it while I was on my own. I figured I had more free time to, to learn what I needed to learn while I was still on somebody else's dime. Now, if you are you know, new to this and you, are, um, you, know, you know nothing about being a financial advisor, but you would like to become one, I would make the same recommendation I'd make anybody who's looking to start a business, which is take at least a year to study it. Talk to people who do it and get a clear understanding about the pros and cons. If you join a large firm, they're going to take a significant part of your revenue. And rarely have I found the amount that they take to be justified. Oh, there's certainly a percentage that's worth it when you consider they may be doing things like paying for your office staff and healthcare. But the amount at which some of these companies take money from the advisor is far greater than what is, in my opinion, fair. And it gets back to this security thing that we often crave. And then I, I will point out that there's a price for that security. So if you want to start in that direction, fine. But I would challenge any advisor at some point to look to break away and become independent. Uh, you're going to find yourself not only making more money, it, it, just because you're keeping more of your money, but you're also going to find yourself having the freedom to work with who you want and, and not have to deal with a lot of the, the headaches that large companies have. Um, Offer. So it's going to depend on your situation. If you know absolutely nothing about financial services, I would, assuming you have a job right now, I would take the time to learn it on your own. Maybe joining a firm at the start might not be bad, but if it's product driven, if it's trying to get you to sell as much life insurance as you possibly can to people who don't even need it, if they're just trying to get you to call your friends and family and become a major nuisance around the holidays, I would give that a lot of second thought. And I emphasize this because that is a very common career path that a lot of people encourage to go into. That that strategy of working for a large company, you know, push certain product, call all your friends and family, the burnout rate in that is huge. And the companies know that. So take some time, think it through, treat it like you would any other
0: business. What do you find to be the most common mistake for advisors? Let's say ones that are just starting out like we're talking about, or even maybe one, two, three, five years down the road?
1: Well, if one of them is, is a failure to, to target. They put themselves in a position where they work with just about anybody. And I understand the temptation. You have this scarcity mentality as to where your next client is going to come from. Now, instead, take the time to become an expert in a particular sector. So, for example, there's, a, there's an advisor I know out of Utah who very early in his career positioned himself as being the go-to advisor for dentists. And that's all he works with today, dentists. He's got people from all over the country reaching out to him because he understands their business. I know another one who only works with optometrists. Now, you don't have to get that narrow. I would, for example, if you lived in a particular market, take Cincinnati, for example, where, where my office is, for a young advisor, I would say, look, there's three major employer groups in Cincinnati. You've got General Electric, you've got Kroger, and you've got Procter & Gamble. Learn everything you can about the benefits program that they have for their employees and become known as an expert for their employees. Become known as the advisor for Kroger or the advisor for Procter & Gamble. You can be an, you can be an expert in all three. You will find your marketing to be a lot easier if you're willing to do that. Now, some advisors are scared to do that because they think if if they do, they'll exclude other people. Trust me, other people who know you have an expertise in those three companies will still want to work with you because those are sophisticated companies that hire very successful people. Try to become a big fish in a small but narrow pond. And if you do that, you're going to find your success rate is going to be a lot faster.
0: What about uh, external things that, that could make and advising career tougher. I'm thinking the prevalence of index investing, like the the Vanguard uh, model. And then robo-advisors have been around a decent amount of time now, but I think are still kind of gaining traction. How does that fit into the overall picture? I actually
1: don't think it has an impact at all because the people who want to hire you, they should not be hiring you for product. Now you can provide them product, but that should not be their primary motivation. So if somebody just wants product, I'd be the fir- I'll be the first one to tell them, go, go get it online. You should be hiring an advisor because you're looking for simplification in your life. You're looking for clarity. You're looking for someone who will do it for you. You're looking for someone to alleviate anxiety that you have. Now, if you don't have any of that, you don't need an advisor. If on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10, you go to bed, when it comes to matters of finances, you sleep like Bill Gates. And in a one, you know, you don't sleep at all. If you're a 10, you don't need a financial advisor. You're already where you need to be. If you're a one, you probably don't have enough money. If you're a five to six, if if you feel working with someone will get you there, great. Look, it's just like a personal trainer. I work out with a personal trainer three days a week. You know why? Because without her, I wouldn't do it. I just would not. I would come up with another reason why I wouldn't do it. And I certainly wouldn't do it as hard. There isn't a single exercise she has me do that I can't do on my own. I don't need her technically, but I need her because I wouldn't do it. So I would argue that there's probably half the people in this audience do not need a financial advisor. And it's not because they don't have any money. It's because they either have enough peace of mind or they enjoy doing it themselves. And thank goodness there are, there are avenues for them. There, at one time, there weren't. You know, you mentioned things like indexing. All my clients are indexed because that's the only way to invest. Unless you have next week's newspaper today, indexing is the only strategy that makes sense. But I know that even if they're in an index strategy, emotions are going to get in the way. I mean, just look at this week that we're in right now. All the indices are down. I don't want people panicking. That's where they need me. They need me to make sure they don't. They need me to make sure that they understand there's a strategy for when things go down. So logically speaking, nobody needs an advisor. This isn't like medicine where you can't get certain drugs without a prescription. No, you can get it all. The question here is, will you actually do it? And if you do it, will you do it in a way that gives you peace of mind? If not, you should probably explore an advisor. But if you're the type of person who wants to be completely in control, if you're the type of person who thinks the news is predictable, then you definitely should do it on your own.
0: I'd love to Meet the person that thinks that the news is predictable after this year. <laughs> but you know what, though?
1: By their actions, they do it all the time. I mean, when, when markets go down, what do they do? They get out of stocks. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, because it's going to go down more. You know that? No. In fact, logically, you know the opposite is probably true. So that, therein lies the problem. And the other thing, too, is if you listen to certain gurus on TV, they're predicting the future all the time. That's what they do. And no one ever holds them accountable when they're wrong. Jim Cramer's wrong almost every time. No one ever holds them accountable. Some people do. Unless you have next week's newspaper today, you should be indexing. Now, a key question is how many indices should you be in? And then how do you rebalance into it? So there are some technical aspects to it. But still, at the end of the day, the reason you hire an advisor is the same reason I hire the trainer. Because I know working with her, I'm going to do what needs to get done. And you know what? When it looks like it's not working, she's going to be there to explain to me
0: why it really is. It seems to me that somebody that is at that five to six that you're talking about, a, a robo-advisor might be something to research. So like you mentioned, the uh, rebalancing and, and things like that, as I understand most of those offerings, that's a lot of what they do is your analysis of what your risk tolerance is, some of those other things, and then it'll do the initial investing. It will rebalance based on whatever the algorithm is saying, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And and you're absolutely right. Look, if you're just looking for product, go robo-advisor route. But here's the other issue too. There's other factors you need to weigh in. I mean, the biggest problem to investors is not market volatility, it's tax. So you need to have a strategy where you ultimately can have a tax-free retirement. You have to also weigh in the unknown. So what is effective use of insurance? When should you have it? What type should you have? That changes over time. Estate planning. So there's a lot of other factors as well. The problem that I have with a lot of robo-advisors is if they're not just true index and rebalance, there's still a lot of them that are based somewhat on a level of speculation. And trust me, humans don't know the future and neither do computers. But it's like I said before, if, if you know the drug you want to take, you don't need an advisor to write the prescription. So, you know, you may find it funny because I, you know, I'm actually encouraging people, you know, here I am, a financial advisor, actually encouraging some people not to hire one because there are a lot of people that hire advisors for the wrong reasons and they ultimately get disappointed. And I actually blame the advisor for taking them on in the first place. So if someone comes into my office and says, I need you to get me an 8% return this year, I'm not hiring. I'm not bringing them on. But there are advisors who would, a lot of them. They'll give it a shot. And um, we won't because we know that's beyond our
0: control. I have to ask since you mentioned the eight percent return, and I'm sure the answer is it depends <laughs> on a person's situation and so on. But if you had to give an average, this is what somebody should be shooting for year over year for a long term investor. Do, do you give that uh, benchmark?
1: What we do is we just show them historical returns, and uh, they you know people need to understand. That the volatility of any portfolio is measurable. So you can measure it through standard deviation. And so what they need to understand is no portfolio has a standard deviation of zero. There's going to be volatility and you need to, you need to agree not to evaluate returns until a reasonable time period has passed. Some people like to say 10 years. I actually like to say the rest of your life. But if you're looking for set periods of performance, what you're asking your advisor to do is to know the news in advance, and he can't. All he can do is base it on the reality that over time, good news tends to outperform bad. But if you're asking that advisor to give you a set return over a certain period, you're actually asking for something he can't do. Historically, equities perform around 10%, depends on which equity class you're looking at. Some higher, some lower, but they don't do it every every single year. In fact, some cases, they only have one good year out of 10. But that one good year is enough to give a reasonable average. I often say, look, focus more on the amount of money that you feel you need to have the goal you want to reach. So let's say it's retirement income. What rate of return would you need given your current amount and the amount that you're saving to achieve that between now and the rest of your life? And And focus it that way. But you'll 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 always set yourself up for disappointment if you target a certain benchmark return over a short term period. It's speculative, and that's a big reason why people get frustrated with the investing process. They're not willing to apply the necessary time. Long term to them is is still short term.
0: I'm even taking that a little further for for the people that do get their head wrapped around long term let's say at least 10 plus years, uh, to your point, it's lifetime if you're really uh, trying to do it the right way. And let's say they're figuring out how much they need to be saving per month. Do you use any kind of benchmark there to then calculate how much they should be saving?
1: What I would just typically say is that equities, if you're going to be in an equity-only portfolio, then it's not unusual to expect a long-term rate of return of around 10%. Now, again, it can vary depending on small cap, international, et cetera. But a double-digit average long-term for equities has historically been the case. But you can certainly data mine, and you can certainly find me a 10-year rolling average where it was negative, or you can find me a 10-year rolling average where it was double. That's going to happen. But, you know, over long times, equities do typically perform close to double digits. Think of it more as return over inflation. If you're in a low inflationary period, you should be willing to accept a lower return on your equities because you don't need the money to grow as much. During a high inflationary period, you need the equities to
0: produce higher. And they usually do. I'm right there with you that uh, this shouldn't be a short term proposition for people.
1: Well, and let's also talk about consistency. Okay. So let's say you're, you're just entering retirement, right? Let's say you, you're going to have a 30-year retirement. So you know you've got to be mindful of inflation and taxes over time. You can't just stick the money in the bank. If I was going to give you 10%, would you want it consistently or inconsistently? Well, most people will say consistently and good. In fact, you want it consistently because you're essentially selling shares and you want to sell as few shares as possible as the years go by. But the problem with consistency is it's boring. The overly diversified portfolio done properly disappoints the investor in the short run all the time because they're at like 6% and their buddies are at 12. Well, when their buddies are at minus 15, they're suddenly now happy they're at 6. So you have to understand that. It's consistency of return. Now, when you're young, you don't need consistency. Ride the wave because as, as... stock prices drop, you get to go out and buy more shares. You should be excited about market drops when you're young. When you're older, you should not have any of the money that you need over the next five years in stocks. So even then, markets go down, I wouldn't worry about it. In fact, I'd probably rebalance and buy more shares at a lower price. But just understand, volatility is really what's important here, in my opinion, more so than than long-term return. They're both important, but if I'm retired, I want that consistency more because I understand if I have to turn shares into cash, I want to sell as few shares as possible at any given time to do it.
0: That just continues to show the example that it depends on where somebody's at age-wise, what they already have, et cetera, et cetera, which is-
1: But seriously, I mean, the history of equities has always been over long-term periods of time, double digit. There's plenty of mountain charts out there where you can see them. You can definitely produce high rates of return, but you're going to have to accept- that volatility. Anyone who suggests you can get the high returns with low volatility is
0: lying to you. I'd be pretty skeptical of that, <laughs> just based on based on what I know. Well, let's uh, move a little bit even to other types of investments. I think just like equities, there are more opportunities than there were in years past to get into things like real estate. Uh, you got like the REITs is what comes to mind for me. How Do you, as an advisor, handle these other alternative or what people may view as alternative types of investments for somebody's overall portfolio?
1: Yeah. And you're using the right word there, alternative, because if you invest in one thing, that means you can't invest that same amount of money in something else. So let's talk about real estate right now. If I put money in real estate, the question is well, that means I'm either going to put less money in stock. Or less money in bonds. If I put less money in stock, I will tell you over time, stocks will outperform real estate. They always have. And if we've learned anything from COVID, corporate real estate, it's going to change dramatically. They better hope they can turn all those big buildings into apartments because um, companies are making hands. Mo- there are some companies making money hand over fist and they're not operating their big offices right now. So it, it took a virus to, to get people to where I think they all wanted to be, which, which was to be working somewhat virtually. Well, those REITs, they're going to be starting to feel it pretty soon. If I put it instead of bonds, well, now I give up the consistency that bonds were made to have. When it comes to real estate, where I typically recommend investors con- consider, and this is only if they want to do it on their own, is to the old model of buying homes that you're going to personally lease out. Uh, that model can work well where you're receiving rents for housing. But just under, you understand, you got to know what you're doing. You got to you got a location's key. The type of person who's likely to rent it is going to be key. And of course, the management issues are there. But to me, real estate is much like gold. It can hit home runs, but typically it won't be as consistent a player as other things are. And so I have generally uh, refrained from making REITs or certainly precious metals as part of any diversified portfolio, simply because the return and the volatility that they bring isn't as good as other things. When I build a portfolio, what I'm looking for is the highest long-term average return with the lowest standard deviation. And when you invoke those two into it, you give up other things that tends to make it somewhat less optimal. And I'm not saying that they won't have their moments of glory, okay? It's kind of like looking at baseball, for example, okay? You know, it doesn't matter what year it is, okay? If we go any year in the future and you ask me to, to, to pick the team that's going to win the World Series, I'm going to say the Yankees. It doesn't mean they're going to win it. It's just there's a higher level of consistency there. If the Yankees go 10 years out winning World Series, that's weird. I mean, I'm a Mets fan. We've only had two World Series in my life. So if the Mets win the World Series, it's more of an – it's like gold. It's an aberration. But if you're asking me, you know, it's like the Tom Brady years with the Patriots. Well, there was a high level of consistency. Did he win the Super Bowl every year? No, absolutely not. So it doesn't mean you can't every once in a while win with like the, the Eagles. But you're probably not going to win very often. And that's the problem when we look at these alternatives. If you're telling me I got a bet on – the, the, the Devil Rays every year as opposed to the Yankees. Now I'll take the Yankees. And I'm not even a Yankee fan.
0: And then again, the other that I think is consistent even for somebody that is looking into an alternative like real estate is know what you're buying.
1: What's the motivation behind the alternative? That, th- that is what needs to be examined. Because you see too often the, the advisor is so quick to make a sale. Sure, you want that? Fine, done. And I'm like, well, let, let's just think about this. Again, it's like switching medications. What is it that you want differently that your current medication isn't giving you? What is it? Because if it's, say, if we're talking corporate real estate, if we're talking return versus standard deviation, I would argue, and it's probably going to be a bunch of egghead advisors are going to send me charts now for saying this. But no, I would argue that you can ultimately achieve that more efficiently, which means less risk, more return, or same return and less risk as defined by standard deviation. You can achieve that without invoking real estate or, um, say, precious metals in a portfolio. Now, again, the exception to that rule would be if you decide you're going to be in the business of real estate, which means you are going to buy properties yourself and you're going to lease those properties. That's a whole different model. That's you're in the business. And your success on that will be largely based not on market forces, really. But on your abilities to create a highly appealing property that people are willing to pay top dollar to lease,
0: and I would assume, even knowing the rest, that's definitely the foundation. But even the rest of it as well of uh, getting a tenant that's not going to, let's say, trash the place, and and so on and so forth.
1: Exactly. Which means you got you you have a property that is highly desirable, so so people are willing to pay more to do it, and you're willing to screen those people in a way that allows you to you know not give it to somebody who's ideal. So that success lies upon you. More so than it does market forces like REITs, who as these companies get out of these leases, they will not be re-upping them.
0: I think it's a good distinction where you mentioned being in the business. Uh, that That's its own thing. It's kind of at the very beginning when we're talking about your career that you have and maybe doing other things and so on. Different from actually running it, doing that, knowing your local market, <laughs> It using the same example as compared to something that you're simply investing in. Um, as its own comparison. So I I think that's probably right on Um, moving to our final topic. Now we've said a number of times as far as the crystal ball and things like that, but I can't help myself. You mentioned March of being that first down. Yes. Unfortunately, as we're recording this, it has not been a good stock market week. I think I just read that October is officially negative because of how much it's gone down, but I'm still going to press you anyway. What do you see in the near term, future and then long-term as we come out of the pandemic?
1: Okay. So long-term, I think things are going to be just fine. Um, I think that, I mean, I look back to the year I was born, 1963, uh, which was the year Kennedy was killed. The S&P was trading at 600. It's doubled numerous times, obviously, since then. And, And during my 57 years on this planet, there's been just tons of horrible news, tons. To think that you know, we don't come out of this fine, I think, is is illogical. Um, it's emotional and it's illogical. Uh, short run. Couldn't give you any idea as far as equity prices go, but I will tell you this. I have one primary concern and it's it's tax. Because the amount of money that we owe as a nation and the amount of money we need to spend for the baby boomer generation as they move to retirement is staggering. And the... As much as a supply sider as I am, I don't think there's any way we could grow the, the economy fast enough to create the treasury revenues that are going to be needed to service that cost. Uh, there are not enough billionaires to make a difference. You could take every single dollar from every billionaire and you still wouldn't make a dent in what is needed. So the advice that I give everybody is you are currently living in the lowest tax environment of your life, probably of ever, you will ever have again. If you've got money sitting in 401ks, IRAs, you should strongly think about paying the tax on some or all that now, converting it to a Roth, get that behind you so that when rates go up to what they used to be in the seventies, you will have at least sheltered that from, from that. So there is my uh, biggest concern. I don't think it matters who wins. I think if Trump wins, he's going to have a very strong desire to finish out with a balanced budget. If, If Biden wins, well, he's very open to raising rates anyway, but I think they're both going to have to. And again, you're talking to somebody who loves low tax rates, but I just don't see the ability to service those entitlement costs without cutting those costs and or unless you raise the rates and they won't cut the costs because that would be the most politically imprudent thing they could ever do so they will have to get the money from somewhere and therein will lie my concern biden's already talked about changing the deductibility of the 401k i think you'll see more attacks on social security benefits which is another way to cut it without actually cutting it but it has the same net result uh so i think you'll see more of that coming forward I think you'll see the amount that retirees are required to pull out of their IRAs going up, and I do think you're going to see higher marginal brackets. But I don't base that based on what I think the news is going to do. I base it on the math, and the math is staggering.
0: I think that is a pretty spot-on analysis from where I'm sitting. I would think the same things are absolutely coming because- The numbers just won't make sense otherwise.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you've got like a Roth 401k at work, use that. Okay. If you've, you know, if you can contribute to a Roth, do it. If you um, have the money to pay for the tax to do a conversion, do it. You're never going to pay at a lower rate than you're paying now, in my opinion. Look, you'll get it behind you. Even if they change the law, they're more likely to grandfather it. So, that would be a way for you to get the money now. And your government will be happy because you're paying more money now. But you know, when you're 75 and you find out the tax rates are going to go up, you don't want to find out from your advisor that uh, you can't net out the same amount you used to have.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the grandfathering because I'm hoping for that as well. That that's... that that's
1: been a universal approach to doing it. I think even if you didn't, it probably would be um, there'd be challenges in the court.
0: I would hope but I will. Gosh, this is a whole different topic, but that's a little bit what makes me nervous when I hear the forgiveness of student loans. <laughs> and boy, I'm, I'm stepping into an unpopular opinion when I say this, but something that makes me nervous from a precedent is if you're forgiving something that occurred that far in the past, that's changing, if you will, what the rules were at the time. And would they use that same kind of premise for something like how 401ks and how your savings and stuff work? That-
1: if, if, if that were to happen, which is about the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, it's forgiving debt like that. If that would happen in my opinion, the party that promotes it won't be in power again for twenty years because it will have such a negative impact on so many other facets That's one of those classic uh games that politicians will talk about, but they'll never actually come out and do it. What they might do and they, this uh, this ability exists now is after so many years, it can be forgiven but you know to To take somebody who chose to study art history at an expensive school when they could have gone to a less expensive and gotten a real job and to give them forgiveness when some guy who was working a factory line diligently saving all of his money so he could send his daughter to a good school and send her to the state school and he gets nothing, go ahead and try it. The, the the political environment in this country, well, it won't, we won't be
0: divisive anymore. It'll be
1: seventy
0: third. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Needless to say, I have very uh, similar perspective on that one. And of course, we could do a whole show on that analysis. But I'll uh, conclude us here. And Dan, again, I appreciate you being on the show. Before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information where they can grab you on social media and maybe any promotions or events that you want to let people know about? No, yeah,
1: absolutely. So first of all, I would say, particularly when it comes to anything of personal finance, tax or retirement, stuff like that, uh, moneyandclarity.com is our website. If you go there, you can order a copy of our tax free retirement toolkit, I'll give you a couple of copies of uh, my books, a lot of other great information in there on strategies that you can employ. If you're a financial advisor, probably the best place to hook up with me is the podcast, the Profitable Advisor Podcast. Uh, It's on all the major platforms. And I'll give you a lot more insight. Then i will also steer you into other things that we have that that you can learn more. But uh, moneyandclarity.com, if you're an investor, profitable advisor podcast, if you are a financial advisor.
0: Very cool. And of course, I'll put all of your information into the show notes so it's easy for folks to find you. Again, I appreciate you taking the time today. And we'll be in touch.
1: Thanks, Greg. Take care.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at SuburbanFolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thanks for listening.